Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. If I remember right, Robert Jordan, when he was started writing the series, like the whole idea he had was how would somebody react if this common person was told you're going to be the savior of the world? And not only the savior of the world, but the destroyer of the world as well, right? I really like the aspect of it. Like you save the world, but at what cost? Kind of uh, hits home with uh, with the coronavirus pandemic going around right now, right? There's, <laughs> yeah, there's some costs to be weighed here. <laughs> Those of us that are social distancing, we're saving the world, but at what cost? (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Hunters for the Horn, and welcome to another episode of Phantology. This is Steven, and I have Jake and a special guest, Caden, online today to talk about book two of The Wheel of Time, The Great Hunt. What's up, guys? Hey, how's it going? Hey, guys, how's it going? So, Caden is the mastermind behind the recently released Phantology website, www.phantologybooks.com. Check that out for all the, for all of your Phantology books needs. And also feel free to look us up on social media at Phantology Books. We're on Patreon and you can also chat with us on Discord, right? Yeah, check us out on Discord. Always looking for new members to be active on there with us. And this is the voice of Jake, the Wheel of Time expert, Phantology's resident expert so he's going to uh, make sure we stay true to the uh, to the facts of the wheel of time yeah and if i don't do a good enough job join the discord and become the new resident expert for us we're always looking for new talent as well definitely okay so let's uh yeah let's jump into the book guys so jake and i are our longtime wheel of time fans jake a little bit more so obviously and kaden is a first time reader right kaden yep this is my first time through i'm in currently in book three so I'm guessing you have lots of hot takes on book two, right? Let's hope so. And we want to make sure as we go through the second book, we're not just recapping the series every time. We are going to be talking about the books individually. So let's jump into the first into the second book. And just, you know, we're going to hit plot points, spoilers. So if you haven't read the second book, this would be a good time to maybe stop. Although we're not going to do spoilers quite yet. Let's just start with this question for you guys. What did you think of the second book in comparison to the first, in comparison to the series? How does it stand up on its own as a book? So my my take on it was um, like the first book felt like really action packed, like every scene like back to back was there was something important and big going on. And I felt like the second book slowed down a little bit. But I also felt like it was more creative and I started to get more into the world in, in this book than I than I really did in the first one. Uh, but I didn't feel like the same drive from scene to scene as I did in, in the first book. Yeah, I'd have to agree, especially with that creativity. I feel like the first book kind of sets the stage a little bit, but then the second book starts to really expand on the setting and show off how unique it is compared to other fantasy settings, um, especially with things like not going to go into spoilers yet, but the whole idea behind portal stones and... And then there's a lot more with the with the Aes Sedai, right? So the, right at the beginning of the book, you see a ton of Aes Sedai and you get a sense of what all the different Ajas are, who the different the faces are. There's probably a ton of names, Caden. I'm guessing you did not remember all of the, <laughs> the Aes Sedai names that got thrown at you. No, I definitely didn't. There was definitely a lot throughout this book that I felt like was thrown at me and I hopefully will remember some of the names and places. It also opens up a lot more into prophecy, dark prophecy, as well as prophecies of the light. And there's more setting because they're always they're journeying towards Falme on the West Coast the whole the whole time. You get some of Carrion, and it seems like each book, especially the intro books, kind of gets you familiar with the, with maybe like one or two more countries in Randland. And then eventually, by the end, you're like, oh yeah, I know the difference between Arad Doman and Camelin, like the back of my hand. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Um, I think similar to the first book and how they're on a quest, on a journey, but this time you get to see completely new parts of the world. Yeah, and as a first time reading the series, the first book, I mean, everyone in the book, you're in like, I mean, I guess you go to the borderlands and you do see some different places, but it really opened up to me, like, yeah, when they get to Carrion, that like, and this is a whole new culture and different people. And that I thought 
for me, that was when this, the world kind of started opening up and I actually started to like appreciate what Robert Jordan was, was doing in the, in the series. So yeah, going back to what you're saying, the first book is a little more action packed throughout. And I think because of that sense of urgency, it has, you don't really stick around long enough in one place to get a big feel for the culture and, and all the, like their unique aspects. Whereas in this book, since it is a little slower in that regard, you get to absorb more of that while reading. And I would say fans of the Stormlight Archive read Wheel of Time as well and kind of take heart in in knowing where the series is going because I think obviously Sanderson is heavily influenced by Robert Jordan and you can kind of see that in his books as more and more of the world of Roshar is being unraveled through through the books and in the third book especially you see more and I expect more in the fourth book. So that's kind of, a, if, if you're looking for a playbook of how Sanderson organizes things, I think Robert Jordan is a good go-to. Yeah, lots of build with, in my opinion, excellent payoff in this series, but there's lots of build, so so hang in there. And we want to talk some about all of the foreshadowing that happens in this book without spoilers for the rest of the series. We're just going to be talking book two here, so if you haven't read it any further, don't worry about that. But we are going to point out a few things like, ooh, this is going to be important down the line, so watch for it. And it's really impressive how Robert Jordan does this. It's incredible how many things he talks about in the first few books that have major payoffs in the 14th book. Okay, so we've been gushing about the series quite a bit now. Let's get into the actual details of the plot. So the first thing that I notice in reading this book is the expansion of different plot threads. You have a a big separation of the major players from the first book, into lots of different directions. They mostly come together by the end of the book, but Rand and Matt do their own thing. They get separated from Perrin and Co. Moraine is doing her own thing the whole time, and then the girls are off in the White Tower. And it's kind of fun seeing them all develop as different characters. And this is going to continue throughout the rest of the series. This is the new standard after the first book is over. Yeah, one thing I thought was interesting is you get a better sense for the Aes Sedai society as a whole. And kind of where Moraine fits in there. In the first book, you just know she's this, you know, she's this magic user who's very wise and knows way more about the world than the main characters, and she's guiding them. And there's that little bit of, wait, do we trust her? We do trust her, but kind of reluctantly. And then this book, you really get to see kind of how she fits in there, what her role is in that society. And you understand more that there are factions in there, you know, some people she trusts more than others. Some people are very antagonistic towards her within that same society. And it just becomes a lot more complex. It's not just, oh, now we're back with the Aes Sedai and the Aes Sedai are all this unilateral, cohesive group. So, Caden, up to this point, how much do you understand of the Aes Sedai? Which ones do you trust? Do you think Moraine is trustworthy? How do you feel about Elida? What about Swan? What are your thoughts? Alana. So, I, yeah, I think Maureen is trustworthy. I, I think she's just doing what's best uh, or what she thinks is best for the world. Like, I think she is planning to, you know, she's trying to influence Rand to fulfill prophecy and stop Balsamon. But she's trying to help keep Rand and, and Perrin and Matt safe. But at the same time, if they ever came between her and her goal, I have no doubt she would cut them loose. What were some of the other Aes Sedai you mentioned? How about Elida and the Amerlin herself? Uh, yeah, say, I would say the same thing for the the Omerlin as I do for Moraine. Elida, I don't like at all. <laughs> I don't know if she's necessarily like a, a bad person, but obviously not not friendly. I mean, so so you don't know if she's evil, right. but she's not like she's not a good person. Yeah, you, like you're trying to decide is she evil or is she just like rude? I guess exactly. Yeah, is she black or red? Is the question you're asking? Right? Black or red? Yeah, that's the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah, I think that right now I just think she's overzealous. They kind of paint Reds throughout, the, at least through the first two books, as kind of like mean and yeah, rude and just that they they hate men. And so that's what it, she comes across as, just yeah, over an overzealous Red to me. And this book, that's what I would say so far. I don't, I don't necessarily think she's evil. So, how much do you understand of Moraine's goal here? It's hinted at what she's up to, and said explicitly a little bit, but I think the details are maybe still a little murky for a first-time reader. It seems to me like she's trying to protect the dragon and get him dragon reborn, right? And prepare him for the final battle, or push him in that direction for the final battle with Balsamon. 
And do you know why she was looking for Rand and Perrin and Matt? Like, what what is her impetus and, and what are her and Swan up to? Because they're obviously like old friends. They're concocting something here. I'm not sure up to this point. Okay, Raffo, read and find out. Yep. It's, it's interesting how Robert Jordan does a really good job of putting clues in there. So as I was kind of looking over the book, I was like, okay, yeah, he said this. So I know what this means because I've read the series. But for first-time reader, you're kind of like slowly unraveling things, and he does this really well. Yeah, I think the the interaction between Moraine, Swan, Varen, and Alana, especially, and and Leandrin, but mainly mainly Moraine, Swan, and Varen and Alana. Those interactions have foreshadowing and lots of repercussions throughout the rest of the series. The things they like, how they join forces or combat each other in the first few chapters. Um, really make a difference throughout the rest of the series. So the book starts with this interesting point of view prologue. And I think this, as well as the the some of the initial chapters with Padon Fane escaping and the Dark Prophecy, really kind of change the tone a bit. It makes it a darker story. And it makes you more aware of the forces that our heroes are opposing, right? Yeah, I feel like the tone just from right from the very beginning of this book was very different than than the first book. And and I think it made the the danger in the story more real. The first book, I felt like you know that there's the dark one, right? That is behind all this, but you haven't met him, or you don't really know what's really happening. I guess, but yeah, that that first part to me at least like made it a lot more real. The the danger that they're in, and the main characters. Yeah, I would I would say the same. To me, it was one of the maybe one of the better prologues in the whole series. Just how you start off in that like dark court going on with all the dark friends and um i thought it was cool to have the perspective of who the dark friend is in the beginning in the prologue their perspective they're looking at these other dark friends in the meeting and they're all disguised and he he's trying to figure out who who or where all these are from and it gives you little hints so then as you're reading throughout the book and the rest of the series you know okay i know there's a dark friend in this place maybe this court or this army or something like that i thought that was a really cool way to kind of expand that threat and it seems like almost every nation and faction was represented in that meeting so it really made it seem like holy cow the dark friends are powerful they're everywhere rand better watch out and that, that was one thing i thought i thought the prologue or you would find out who more of those people were throughout the book of the people that were in the prologue and you didn't really and so it, it opens it up even for further in the series which going in as a first-time reader i didn't realize it wouldn't kind of all be or come to light in that in that first part. Yeah, that's this is a like a classic Robert Jordan technique where he'll introduce these characters or expect you to know who is being talked about just by their description or by their mannerisms or their culture or something like that. So I think at the end of book two, you know who you can you can figure out who probably a, a third to half of these people are, maybe more. But it's never outright said. Like it's something you have to read over and over again and catch up on the details. I definitely missed it my first probably two or three read throughs. I was gonna say I've been listening to it, which I think makes it a little harder as well. I think if I was reading it, it'd be a little easier to pick up on. Yeah. Robert Jordan has a lot of instances where he does not tell you what happened or who did what. And there's been some interviews where he just says, Well, if you read carefully, you should know. And there are some huge details. We can't do uh, spoilers yet. But I think book like five or six, Jake, if I'm you're probably guessing what I'm hinting at, someone is killed yeah. unexpectedly. And he never says and he never says, but he always said, oh, yeah, if you read closely, you'd be able to figure it out. But there's like really no clues. And it's not revealed until later. Sanderson got <laughs> it from his notes and actually pieced it together. Later on, when Sanderson finished the series, he's able to he like lays out clearly who it was but at that point it had been like so long and i think that's probably the number one instance of where this technique failed i feel like almost every instance i've appreciated it because it's it's like these little nuggets you can dig through that aren't they're not game changing when you figure it out but it's like oh cool that's who this is or that's that's what this is talking about this is how this happened but that one was a major fail (laughs) yeah so i don't remember what book that is i'm guessing five or six but anyone in the fandom should know the phrase who killed blank. That will explain yeah. exactly what we're talking about right away. It's that well done. Yeah. Another instance of this actually is when Pet and Fane is freed from his prison. 
he looks up and he says, oh, I didn't expect it to be you who would free me. And do you guys know who that was? Maybe let's not ask Jake. I'm guessing Jake Goat knows. Caden, do you <laughs> suspect who that was that freed him? Are we going straight to spoilers right now? or? Oh, yeah, we're going into the plot. I don't know who it is. I don't even have a guess right now. I totally forgot about that scene until just right now. It's, it's a dark friend. A dark friend freed him. <laughs> <laughs> the, I, if I remember right, there were Aes Sedai in the tower, right? At the same time, the Amarlin Sea had gotten there with the entourage of Aes Sedai. But maybe I'm wrong there. Because, I mean, Leandrin was there, right? Leandrin was there. That's a good guess. But it was actually Inktar. That's not actually revealed in the text at all. But it came out in an interview with Robert Jordan where he said who it was. So that's just another instance. And, and this happens quite a bit throughout the series. Okay, so this goes into the dark prophecy that Fane writes on the walls in blood or something like that. Something menacing. I don't remember if it's actually blood. Yeah, it is. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> we don't need to go into details, and we probably can't remember all the details. There's a lot of foreshadowing here. But the gist of it is that these are some of the same events that the prophecies, prophecies of light are predicting, but in a darker way, hinting at maybe the possibility that the dragon could be bad, could be a servant of the Dark One. And could help destroy the world, right? Yeah. So, Caden, do you think this is a possible direction the series is going in? Or do you think that no matter what, the dragon, who we think is Rand right now, is going to be good? I, I feel like definitely throughout this book, it's made that kind of made that clear that Rand could go either way. It seems like the book, though, is making it seem like he would go mad. And that's why he would destroy the world. I think I need to read more of the series and see what Robert Jordan's willing to do to his characters before I be able to make a like a clear judgment call to whether or not it he would do something like that. Uh, up to this point, I yes, anything is possible. Okay, so what's the probability in your mind as a reader, having finished book two, what's the probability Rand is the Dragon Reborn and stays true to his calling and fulfills it and saves the world? What's the probability Rand is the Dragon Reborn, stays true, but goes crazy and or destroys the world in the process. And then what's the pro probability that he is a Dragon Reborn and turns evil? Jake, this sounds like a statistics lecture going on right now. Yeah, it's perfect for <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, 100% Rand is the Dragon Reborn, at least so far in my mind. Okay. My prediction would be that he saves the world and then goes crazy and, and dies at the end. So saves it. Saves okay. the world. Like 85% saves the world. So that's your prior, right? Yeah. And then after book three, we'll, we'll reassess. Yeah, yep, that sounds good. <laughs> All right, Bayesian statistics, man. <laughs> and this book um, does really seem to set Rand up as the, dra as the dragon reborn. Like Throughout the book, he, he's growing more. And, like people start to respect him more or see him as a lord instead of just a, a shepherd. And it seems like, I mean, I, I won't say much about book three, but it seems like that tone kind of changes a little bit just even right at the beginning. Yeah, like book book one, it's, I mean, you don't really know he even has that potential until pretty much the climax, right? Right. And then, so book two, you know, that's a possibility. And I feel like at the end of the great hunt, it's according to like to everyone's viewpoint, it's like pretty much almost a given from the main characters, right? Right. It seems a lot more solidified there, a lot less room for doubt, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, and this is maybe one thing that I think would have been a little more interesting in the series is if it kept you guessing a little bit longer who the actual Dragon Reborn was. It could subvert some expectations, but it doesn't really do that. Like, it, may, he kind of makes a half-hearted attempt throughout most of the first book, but, I mean, everyone just kind of knows Rand's yeah. the Dragon Reborn at this point. Yeah, he's, got, he's definitely the main point of view in the first book and mostly the main point of view in the second book. You know, you expect the main character to be the hero kind of thing. I feel like if it was written today, if Robert Jordan had started the series in the last five or ten years, there would probably be a lot more of that. Is it really him? Is it not? Room for maybe someone else to be fulfilling similar checks on the list to become the Dragon Reborn. Yeah, you guys haven't read any Brent Weeks, but fans of the Black Prism series, the Lightbringer series... I mean, imagine if Brent Weeks was writing Rand, how he would subvert expectations. I think that'd be pretty interesting. And that's something I think, I hope this show does. But I don't know, judging how the plot goes in books one and two, and most people are assuming the show is going to condense both of those into the first season. But it'd be cool to get a little more, I don't know, a little more suspense and doubt thrown into into the air of like wait is moraine with them for rand is she there for matt or perrin because they all seem to have their own 
mystique around them. One thing I thought was interesting too is like Rand is denying, even when the reader really knows like 100% Rand is the dragon reborn, he still won't admit it to himself. Uh, and he denies it for like a good portion of the book, right? He just won't won't accept that that's his life. So that was, that was interesting to me. And I, th- I love that about Rand's character. It seems pretty realistic. He's a farm boy raised without a whole lot of aspirations, even though he does kind of seem like the smartest, most capable kid in the village. But at the same time, if all of a sudden that's your background and then all and then a wizard is telling you you're the dragon reborn prophesied to destroy the world, that'd be a pretty tough pill to swallow. I would not be ready for that. Especially with, I guess now's the time to say it, with Tom coming back. Ba-boom, Tom, he's back. <laughs> his, his influence on Rand has made him very dubious of Aes Sedai in general, and Tom is aware of false dragons who seem to have been like set up by Aes Sedai. And so Rand has those doubts in his mind. Also, if I remember right, Robert Jordan, when he was started writing the series, like the whole idea he had was how would somebody react if this common person was told you're going to be the savior of the world? Like how, how would that affect them and how would that change their, like their whole being? So I think, like you said, that does a really good job of how Rand, how a real person would react in that situation. And not only the savior of the world, but the destroyer of the world as well, right? Yeah. Last last time around, the dragon broke the entire world. I really like the aspect of it. Like, you save the world, but at what cost, you know? Kind of uh, hits home with uh, with the coronavirus pandemic going around right now, right? There's, <laughs> yeah. There's some costs to be weighed here. <laughs> Those of us that are social distancing, we're saving the world, but at what cost? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We'll see. April's going to be a rough month. <laughs> okay, so, Caden, did you think Tom was dead after the first book? Did you think he would be coming back? Yes, I did think he, was, he would be coming back. Nice. Nice call. So, I, I, I like Tom. I was excited when he comes back. I was hoping he'd have a bigger part in book two. So, I'm excited to see what he, you know, he ends up doing later on in the series as well. Yeah, he's going to continue to to play something of a role. I mean, he's obviously a minor character, but he's it's always fun when he's on screen. Another thing, and I feel like I, I say these things all the time, but another cool theme of The Wheel of Time is even the smallest, seemingly smallest actions a character has, has large consequences throughout the series. And sometimes, more more times than, than not, an unlikely, in an unlikely way. And Tom has a lot of those in this book. I'm not going to spoil too much for what happens, but the the revenge he gets in Carrion for the people who killed his lover, that has some major repercussions later down the line. I'm not remembering. I'm not remembering what this is, so you might have to we might have to chat about this in Discord. Okay, is that spoiler? That's not a spoiler. I felt like that was pretty clear that at least from the end there or I don't remember who it was like if it's the landlord that he's with or whatever, but she's like don't go and do anything crazy and I felt like Robert Jordan made it clear that he was going to go get revenge, and it, it seemed pretty ominous to me. Do you know who he ended up killing for that? Was it the king? Yeah. That's what it made, He hadn't done it yet, right? But that's what it made it seem like he was going to go do. Yeah. Is this all spoilers? I really... So he kills the uh, the two assassins that come, right? Or, yeah. or they kill. And then he can tell that one of them isn't the... That came from the king or whatever. And so he's all mad, and I, at least I thought it was obvious. It happens off screen, end of this book. It's like never really addressed. It's like talked about later, but it's never like specifically like a scene that's shown. Okay, yeah. I mean, Tom is always playing Days to Mar, the, the game of houses in Carrion. And that's going to be a, a plot thread that comes back. Not my favorite plot thread. I find that one to go on a bit long through some of the books, but let's not go too much into that in this review. Um, another thing that happens in uh, Carrion is when Rand is hiding from the Trollocs with Loyal and Huron and Selene, I think, and they hide inside the... Oh, the Illuminers Guild? Yeah, the Illuminers Guild, their chapter house, and how everything kind of hits the fan there. That leads into some pretty cool subplots, pretty minor subplots, but pretty cool later on yeah that is like way later on if i remember when that finally pays off but the illuminaries guild and the fireworks are kind of fun every now and then yeah okay so you mentioned celine let's backtrack a little bit i want to ask hayden what is your impression of celine as someone who probably does not yet understand everything about her obviously i know she's bad news 
And it's kind of frustrating to watch those characters go around with her and like, you're like, what are you guys doing? But you kind of understand that she has some sort of power over them, right? And as the book goes on, you start to realize, I think, I started to figure out who she is a little bit, but you still wonder, like... Let's hear your conjecture as to who you think her identity is. So I think she's one of the Forsaken. But if that's true, it seems weird to me that she goes along with Rand. She obviously has some power. Um, She's responsible for him getting taken into the portal stone, right? Egwene has that dream. Well, no, actually, she's not responsible for him going in the first time. That's because he's just channeling Sidene next to the portal stone, and he goes in unknowingly. Is it? I thought I thought she's the one who who brought them there. No, no, because they come across her fighting the the golem the or the grolem thing. The grolem, yeah. They rescue her. Yeah, I thought she set that up. Like she transported them there, and then like kind of set up for them to find her in there. Maybe that's up to your interpretation, but I assumed it ran. I could be I could be wrong on that. That's how I've always interpreted it. I've never really read into that. That was my assumption as well. That it was like a trap that she pulled them in. Yeah, she was like following them the whole time and meant for them to come across her then. But it seems weird though if she that she has all this power and like she could have taken the horn. There's like multiple chances, but she seems to be like guiding Rand along. She keeps wanting him to take the horn, huh? Right. She's like, you could have all this glory, Rand. <laughs> take the horn. <laughs> and that's what starts to get you really thinking like, oh, maybe Rand shouldn't take the horn. Maybe he's just going to destroy the world and that's what they want and i don't know it's interesting it's, I, I don't know what she's trying to do and where she's trying to guide him but not it's not good whatever it is and not to mention she's described as the most beautiful woman that that rand has ever seen so there's that aspect of the temptation here well that's how you know she's so trustworthy <laughs> according to rand that's right always tr- <laughs> always trust the hot ones <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. so you think she's a forsaken you're not quite sure exactly what's going on that's a that's a pretty good I would say that's a pretty good assessment. There are enough clues if you are really watching for them um, as to what her identity is, like the way she signs a letter. And then there's some prophecies, some actually some of the dark prophecy that Pot on Fane writes refers to her identity. So a reader who's going through a second time would probably be able to pick up on these things. But yeah, for a first time reader, I think that's pretty astute. Forsaken, that, that's a good conjecture so far. Okay, so you think she's a Forsaken, not quite sure exactly, but you have, I'm guessing you have some conjecture as to who she is, maybe, but don't tell us exactly in this in this podcast. Yeah, there's, there's a part at the end of the book where new characters appear, and based on their description, it kind of gives you a clue as to who she is. At least I, I think that. I'll have to read further to, to verify it. One interesting thing at the end when Min sees her, this character... She doesn't have a viewing of her, which seems kind of strange considering this character's importance to the pattern. Yeah. Yeah, they don't. She doesn't mention that at all. But at the same time, something else may have been at play to distract from that. Okay, we'll keep that vague. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So so speaking of women, we haven't touched on the subplot here at the White Tower. It's fairly important. We have our, our favorites, Nynaeve, Egwene, Elaine, and Min. Let's get Caden's thoughts. What's your ranking right now for the... For the dynamic trio, the dynamic trio plus Nynaeve. Yeah. <laughs> I really like Egwene's character. Yeah. Maybe that's not what you're asking, but I like her just because she seems to like actually grow at a normal pace where it seems like Rand or any of the other characters are like growing into their powers really quickly and, and magically. But it seems like Egwene, like while she does have, she wants to become an Aes Sedai, she's not just magically like super powerful. Um, so I like that about her character is that she's struggling and going through things and ha- having to learn. And I think it's a little bit more realistic than some of the other ones, or at least it adds more more depth to her character. Yeah, they make a point to humble her pretty well in the tower as well. Right. Yeah. And so I'm assuming you're you're referring to the fact that Nynaeve comes in and is immediately tested for accepted. So she skips the first rank, goes straight to accepted and passes. And it just it's so fast, right? Like, why is she so special in being able to do this? Right, and then when she's angry, she can channel really well and seems to be like a full-fledged Aes Sedai, but she can't do it on command, but just seems like, just click, suddenly she can channel all this power and, and is in the middle of this battle, and it, it's fine. That's like the whole thing w- with the, the Wilders, is they, they learn to channel, but they have this block that stops them from doing it, except when, in Nynaeve's case, except when the plot needs it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When the plot allows for Nynaeve to be able to channel. But I do think that's cool how every character kind of has their own shortcomings, their, their own things they have to deal with. Fairly realistic. 
Nynaeve's is the block. Egwene and Elaine are being humbled in the tower. And honestly, like, what is Min's thing here? I'm not a huge Min fan. I'm sorry. I freaking love Min. Sorry, you were going through your ranking, Caden. She's probably my favorite. One of my top favorite female characters in the whole series. Yeah, I was going to say I liked Min as well. In fact, I like, so Egwene's probably my favorite and then Min uh, and then Elaine. I Honestly, Nynaeve kind of bugs me. She seems like she's just always angry and grumpy and it kind of annoys me a little bit. She is, but I've grown to, to really like her more. Honestly, bottom of my list, very far bottom of my list is Elaine. She gets so annoying as the series goes on for me. <laughs> yeah, big, big fans of the series will tell you that Elaine is not a favorite character. Nynaeve, though, Nynaeve is is very much all bark in the sense that her out like outward persona can be very annoying, especially as a reader. But I think if you read between the lines of like why she's acting a certain way, for me, that made me feel like she's more endearing. Thinking in between the lines, what are her real motivations? Why is she acting the way she is? It made me like, okay, I like her a lot more. But yeah, she's she can be super annoying to read from. So here's something, reading between the lines of Nynaeve, the romance with Lan, right? For me, that always kind of came out of nowhere. I'm not a huge fan of it. What was your take on that romance? Ignore my bias that I just gave you. Ah, <laughs> uh, good question. You can just agree with me. That's fine. <laughs> I don't like it, but I, I don't dislike it. It seems like the interactions between Moraine and Lan make it seem like it's going to come up more in the future, to me at least. Yeah, I don't have a ton of opinions about it. My thing is, I think in the first book when they like professed their love for each other, that was kind of kind of out of nowhere for me. But at the time reading it, when I first read the first book, I was like, okay, yeah, it's like a book, a fantasy book. People fall in love at first sight. But then comparing it to the realism of a lot of other things in the series as it goes on, it's kind of like, wait, that was like really out of nowhere for them to be in love. But to be honest, that's kind of like all the love couples we have in Wheel of Time. Most of them to me are kind of just, and now these people love each other. Probably the best one is a spoiler and I can't say, but (laughs) I think there's one relationship that has a lot of hinting along the way. And so when it happens, it kind of fell out of nowhere. But then thinking back and rereading it, there's a lot of clues that lead up to their romance. But for the most part, it's just, I saw you and you were pretty and now I love you. And so now we will die for each other. <laughs> that That's one thing I don't like as much about the series. Just the romance is all, it's mostly off camera and there's no characters that I'm really shipping too hard. Okay, I'll say there's two romances. Also another too spoiler to bring up but there's another romance i really liked that had more on-screen development i can guess what both of them are we can talk on discord yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay so let's get back to the plot some i think at this point we are what we're leaving carrion and well the boys are leaving carrion and the girls are leaving the white tower the horn has kind of gone back and forth between fane and our heroes a few times and at this point it's off in falme and everyone is converging there right jake yeah um i kind of want to talk what is your thoughts on the difference between pat and fane in book one and book two like he had such a small role in book one but did he did you think that he would have this big of a role like later on did you think he'd be this big of a threat after seeing his what he become at the end of book one no yeah that that totally surprised me he seems kind of weak in the first book and not very cool but then, yeah, he, he really turns into a big villain in this one. He's like torturing Merdral to, to do what he wants them to do. And to me, I was like, oh, wow, he's a way bigger player than I thought he was ever going to be. Yeah, he's like combined a Ringwraith and Gollum and you have Fane. <laughs> yeah. So, Caden, do you understand exactly what's going on with his character? Like, why is what, what is this compulsion he has towards Rand and what's his deal with the dagger? It seems like he went right. He went crazy. I mean, he got taken to Shale Ghoul, right? And Balsamon tortured him or did something to him that made him want to chase Rand. But they hit a point where he just kind of snapped and seems like he has that obsession with Rand. But he also hates uh, Balsamon for what happened to him. So he's just kind of going out on his own. But he's absorbed this evil into him and has kind of taken him over. Yeah, he's the chaotic evil if you're doing a, a classical character alignment. Like, yeah, he has a connection to Balsamon. But also he's just kind of out for his own and he's got his own motives and they're a little bit crazy. Yeah. He also has this connection to the dagger, right? And that came about 
in the first book when they're at Shadar Logoth. When they're at Shadar Logoth. Yeah, so basically the the guy who was trying to get who basically gave uh, Matt the dagger, right? Mordeth. The incarnation of evil that is from Shadar Logoth. Yeah. So that's like like they say an opposite evil to the dark one's evil. But so that entity took over Fane's body. So now he's he's Fane, but he's also Mordith. Like that whole entity is in him and is now like it took him over to basically be a way for it to not be trapped in the city anymore. And so that's why he has the affinity towards the dagger because that is tainted by Mordith. So it's it's his, you know, he has this compulsion to have it, but he also still has the dark one's touch on him. And he also has a little bit of just his own madness from being consumed by both evils. He's got a rough, very, very yeah. <laughs> tough lot in life here. <laughs> but yeah, you'll, you'll get more of that. And that's maybe another thing that is not ever explicitly explained 100%. But you can piece the, piece the puzzle together a bit on Fane. And, uh, and that's just another part of the Wheel of Time, figuring out these types of things, right? Yeah. But yeah, like you're saying, so they're headed to Falma. One thing, another thing I really liked about this uh going back to the portal stones is that flicker scene when ran takes everybody from the ogre steading to um falma that part to me it was so cool everyone's seeing their alternate lives and i didn't it take them like three months to actually travel there what do you think about that part i, I really liked it as well it's really interesting uh and i thought it added more depth to the characters because later on after that they each they start doing they act different based on what they saw yeah. Even later in, in, in further books, right? It comes up a little bit. So, yeah, I, I thought it definitely was a really cool scene. You see alternate lives, alternate egos like this quite a bit, like in the accepted test. There is a, is a part later on. I'll just say it's at Ruidian, and you see, again, alternate, alternate lives, alternate futures. It's another calling card of the Wheel of Time, and it's really fun. Again, it's another aspect of how this book has really built itself upon the like foundation of book one to ex- to expand out and make itself more unique introducing like you said with the accepted test is a big focus and these portal stones how they're parallel worlds going on and you have the world of dreams as well all these things kind of showing how there's these infinite like i don't know inf- inf- infinite is also a theme in the will of time this cyclical nature but slightly different things happening over and over again Brandon Sanderson was on this podcast actually yesterday. This podcast? Not this podcast. I wish. Maybe one day. <laughs> he was on a different podcast. Actually, actually, a YouTube show is, is what he was on. And someone asked him the question, if Wheel of Time was part of the Cosmere, if the Wheel of Time world was part of the Cosmere, what shard would inhabit this shard world? So this is hardcore Cosmere lore for you super nerds out there. And his answer was none of them, but it would be something like the Shard of Prophecy or Foretelling or something like that. And that's just an idea that, that sums up the series super well. Also, if if the Wheel of Time were part of the Cosmere, that would mean our lives are part of the Cosmere as well, since we're all part of, like, the Wheel of Time is just another age. Yeah, yeah. Going, going back to what uh, Jake <laughs> revealed for us in the Eye of the World podcast, that there are some prophecies of our world even being part of the turning of the Wheel of Time. So, okay, I'm going to try to journey maybe into the spiritual realm tonight, Jake. Yeah, let's go to Shadesmar. (laughs) Yeah, so getting to Falma, next big players kind of enter the scene, the Shan-Chan. This is like their their first introduction, but also classic Wheel of Time fashion. They're kind of introduced really abruptly, and you don't really know what's going on. Like, you don't know who they are. Like, you hear what they kind of say about themselves, but what other people are saying about them too, like all these rumors starting and those accents, right? <laughs> do, they, do they have accents? Does Michael Kramer give them a good accent? Um, they give them okay accents. In the books, they're described as having big drawl. And I think Robert Jordan's gone on record saying that they sound like they're from Texas, which is not how Michael Kramer and Kate Reading do it. But. <laughs> <laughs> Kaden, what was your, what, what was your take on the Sean Chan Kaden as a first time reader? I mean, yeah, you don't like them. You feel uh, Egwene's pain when she's taken captive as one of the Damani. I feel like uh, Robert Jordan did a really good job of getting you inside of her head and like being able to feel what she what she felt while she was imprisoned and being forced to do what what she was. And 
at, at reading it, I was like, man, I would hate someone like imprisoning me and making me do things. So I, I thought that was really well done, that part. But yeah, you don't like them. You, the, you do get the sense that he's setting them up for something bigger, something bigger to come. But in, in book two, they're not that big of a, at least they don't have that big of a role, it seemed like to me. They, they kind of get taken care of in book two. Yeah. But bringing up what you said about Egwene, that again has a huge impact on her as a character for the rest of her, the rest of the whole series. Again, kind of taking a jab at what our fellow member Ben said on the last, on the last episode about the eye of the world and his gripe with the series that no one has real character growth. Like this is a huge moment of character growth for her. You see it immediately in the next book and, and throughout the series, like she, she's forever haunted by the idea of being not even just enslaved, but in someone else's power because of what happens while she's on an Adam. Yeah. The astute listener will realize that although Ben was on the eye of the world podcast, he is not present here in the recording of the second book review. <laughs> no idea why. <laughs> but yeah, no, ag- agreed on Egwene. I mean, very unfortunate that she was taken captive. Everyone else was able to escape somehow because plot allowed Nynaeve to channel at this crucial moment. But yeah, this definitely <laughs> defines Egwene's character in the future. I was going to say, I'd be interested to see too if it uh, does anything to Nynaeve and her future character. Like when they're breaking uh, Egwene out, she takes control of that other, I can't remember what they call the, the person controlling the Damani. The Soldom. Yeah, the Soldom. She takes control of that Soldom and makes her a Damani. And it's apparent that she hates every part of it, but I don't know if she's gonna have the, it's going to have the same impact on her as it did Egwene later on, but something I'll have to see. That was a twist in and of itself. Um, you find out more later on, but the Soldom are supposed to be able to control the Damani, but the Soldom aren't supposed to be able to become Damani. You'll, mm. you'll see more in that later on in the series. Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your thoughts on the Shan-Chan in the sense like, it seems like they enslave Aes Sedai, or at least people who can channel, and Leandrin brought them some, some greenies from the tower. Greenies as in newbies, not as in... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Green Aja, right? Greenie, green green Aja. Yep, yep. So Leandrin's obviously evil, right? Or is this just a business transaction trying to get rid of some rivals? Are the Sean Chan all dark friends? Yeah, what's what's the connection here? I like it. Caden, what's the connection here? Explain to you, please. Uh, Leandrin's definitely <laughs> evil. I feel like with the Sean Chan, it was more of a business deal. I don't think they're inherently evil, but just try- at least from this book, it makes it seem like they're just trying to you know, take over the world. Well, they're coming to reclaim the lands of Ardor Hawkwing, all the Oathbreakers over here. But um, something something I think to, that's worth noting to think on is they seem pretty intent on leashing every Damani they see, but they're fine to do a transaction with Leandrin. Maybe they just couldn't tell that she could channel or we'll let you simmer on that. Hmm. Well, and my, my thought was that they did know she could channel during the transaction, right, there's a, I don't know if it was a High Lord or some lady there who was in charge, and she seemed yeah, to be... Yeah, the High Lady Suroth. Yes, she seemed to really dislike uh, Leandrin and the fact that she was free, but it seemed like they had some agreement that prevented them from yeah. capturing her, but they didn't. it didn't go into what. All right, speculate on that. We're not going to go into it, because I, that probably is a bit of a spoiler at this time. That kind of catches us up to where the girls are. And then the boys are coming in, and Ingtar betrays them, right? Or it's revealed that Ingtar was uh, was betraying them the whole time he was a dark friend? That caught me way off guard. Rereading it, there's some clues for it, whatever. That caught me off guard super hard, and I was real sad about that on my read. Yeah, I agree with that. I was not expecting it. And it, the first time I read it, it felt really out of... Well, I only read it once, but it felt really out of place. Like I was like, what? why is this even happening? It seems like it was a little forced. Uh, and now that you talk about it, it kind of makes more sense. There's definitely things I missed. Yeah, definitely sad too. He's described in the prologue in that meeting, and he has a hand with Pat and Fane, and I think he has a hand with um, the invasion into the city. All of that seems like Rand let him go a little too easily in the end, but I guess he helped save him, so it's it's good. Yeah, he makes the noble sacrifice. Your classic misunderstood bad character sacrificing himself to try to be redeemed right at the end. Allowing Rand to uh, to become a Blade Master. That was pretty cool. 
I don't know if he really earned it. That was actually one of the things I didn't like, is I felt like, yeah, Rand suddenly just jumped to Blademaster, like, in one book after a couple months fighting with the sword. And sure, he has, you know, he can get into his, the void, and maybe touch the power, but it just seemed a little forced to me, that part. I agree with that. Little force, little plot armor there. Come on, he trained with he trained with Lan for like a chapter at the beginning. That should that should be enough, right? And at least at least two chapters in between books, right? <laughs> right. It's, like it's weird because as a reader, you're totally cheering for it, right? You want him to succeed, and you're like, "Yes, it's awesome." Become yeah. a blade master, but at the same time, you're like, "Wow, that was really fast." They, I think, I feel like they address it later on that he has the title of a blade master because he he slew a blade master, but not necessarily had the skill to be considered a blade master at the time. I feel like they address it later that it was kind of a fluke, but he is technically a blade master. Well, well I did like with Rand scene, at least with him fighting was back when he steals the horn uh, before they get to uh Carrion. I feel like that was more uh, realistic where like, you know, fighting Trollocs and killing them, like after a couple months, like sure that seemed real. and was really cool to me. And I felt like good character progression and just kind of jumped a little bit. Yeah. But he did get the the heron branded on his palm, right? Twice. Has he already had it twice? By the end of the book, it, he does get it twice. Which is one of the prophecies of the dragon. Right. Twice and twice. He shall be marked. Thank you, Tom Marilyn. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, then, well, I guess we can jump to that battle. Well, let's let's set, this, set the scene a little bit beforehand. So they have the horn and they're trying to escape. But then you have the Shan Chen army on one side. And then the White Cloak army on the other side, and they're going to clash. And the, our our heroes are right in the middle of that. And so, with seemingly nothing else to do, Matt decides to blow the horn. About time, right? I mean, <laughs> you got the horn. Why? I would have blown the horn so much sooner. The horn is so would cool. Would you have though? I mean, re- reading up to it, in my mind, the horn needs to be there for the last battle. This did not seem like the last battle. Come on, if I've got the ability to command. I guess I would have been a little more taken with Celine's temptations. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree with Jake. I was not expecting him to blow the horn at all in this book. And, and then let alone yeah. like that Matt does it. it. It was awesome. I was so happy it wasn't Rand though. That it just like, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. I think they, they do a pretty good job of divvying up the, the glory <laughs> <laughs> amongst the characters. As you get to know Matt's character more, this seems very much like him, something he would do, the, the gambler yeah. move, right? The, a bit of a chaotic wild card here. It's that, and it also goes along the line of reluctant to do his duty, but does his duty in an astounding way, always, which is kind of a calling card for Matt throughout his progression. I, I think it was really ironic that, like, the Sanchan are here, right, to reclaim the lands of, you know, Arter Hawkwing, but then he comes back as one of the heroes and, and drives them out, right? Yeah. I, I love that. And I love how in the like the epilogue, when they kind of talk about how the rumors spread amongst the land, like one of the rumors is Ardor Hawkwing's armies have come back and conquered. And the other is, no, Ardor's Hawkwing, Ardor Hawkwing's armies have come back and repelled the invading armies when kind of both are true, you know, but in their own way. I don't know if he first intended for that huge confusion and like play on words to happen, but... It fits so well on the theme of the chaos of rumors and everything being spread. Yeah, in a world without the internet, there is still misinformation. <laughs> it's, it's disappointing to realize. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was a really cool scene. I gained a lot more respect for Bornhold Sr. at this time when he tells Child Buyer to go off, record the battle for his son and for like the records and He's totally willing. Like he's definitely a misguided character, but he got, he gained a lot of points in my book at that time. Yeah, the white cloaks are annoying, but they do do I guess some good things every now and then. They correctly realized, or I mean, at this point, we believe they correctly realized the Shan Chan were something they should actually. Find. Yeah. So Matt blows the horn, and that sets us up for the exciting conclusion with Rand, right? Yeah. What the heck is with the battle in the sky? <laughs> That's everyone's question. After reading. Like, maybe I'm just comparing right now to Brandon Sanderson, but I feel like, you know, you're at the climax of the book, and I feel like Brandon Sanderson's climaxes just make so much sense, and it's very logical, like, everything kind of has an explanation, not everything, but most things have an explanation, and then you have Robert Jordan here, which suddenly just brands in the sky, fighting Balzaman, and to me, it was a little, a little weird, 
I, I mean, I like I like it, but that is one thing that was weird to me. Or so far, both with the ending of the first book and this book, it just kind of like happens all of a sudden. It seems a little jarring what's going on. And that kind of fits with Robert Jordan's soft magic system compared to Sanderson's systematic Sanderson's systematic heart magic system. Those details all kind of fall in line. And the battle in the sky is a little bit more murky, and we don't really understand exactly how they got there and what magic was used. You'll quickly get some hints as to what really happened and the why, how he got to the sky. And a similar thing happened in the end of Eye of the World. I feel like in general, The Great Hunt has a lot of the same plot beats or story beats, I should say, as The Eye of the World, but kind of done in a true sequel fashion, kind of raising the stakes, making things more intense and kind of revamping them. And their climaxes are kind of similar, right? Fighting Balsamon again, but not as confusing. I feel like I could follow the climax better in The Great Hunt than I could in Eye of the World. I agree with that. But the whole him being enveloped in this, like the misty whatever from the the horn, and then all of a sudden he's in the clouds, that's explained better in the next few books. Okay. I don't, I'm not going to spoil it and, and say exactly what happened now. And it also was kind of plot necessary and prophecy necessary for everyone to be able to see them fighting to kind of, you know, fulfill that prophecy and or show himself to the world instead of just his friends that he is the dragon reborn. So, Kaden, now that we've killed Baselman for the second time, what does this mean for the world? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, he's obviously not dead again. I don't know why Rand <laughs> thought that the first time. Yeah, he even says the Dark One's name like a fool. Yeah, seriously. I was like, what are you doing? Even as a reader, I'm like, oh, man, this guy, what is he thinking? I'm a little <laughs> hesitant to name the Dark One now in this Yeah, I'm, in I'm this turning of the it. wheel. Yeah, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I actually really, so while I didn't like just how magical it was, uh, I, I really like the scene, though, when he kind of realized he's like, all right, I'm going to own this. I'm going to fight Balsamon. I will be the dragon. I'll sheath the sword, right? I'll take the hit. Yeah, awesome moment. What what a great payoff from that first chapter when Lan teaches him, what is it, the heron waiting in the rushes right. and sheathing the sword. And you totally saw it coming, like that was so foreshadowed. You knew it was going to happen, but you were waiting for it and it, the buildup was awesome. And I, I, I did like that moment. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so that kind of takes us through the book. Let's talk a little bit briefly about how this fits. How does this book fit into the series Jake, without giving too many spoilers, like where does this take us from start? We started in book one. Now we're in book two. Off we go into 12 more books. I'm going to say this. This book is kind of like a redo of the first book with more context. And that the first book is kind of like Rand himself realizing at the very end that he could be the dragon reborn. And then this one follows that same progression. But instead, the whole world is realizing that the dragon could be reborn, you know, that he could be the dragon reborn. So I feel like it's still a, it's an introduction to the world and to the plot in general. Some people have a lot more growth in their plot lines, probably the girls more than anybody because they've been able to go to uh, Tarvalon and start their venture as an Aes Sedai. But for Rand, Matt and Perrin, Rand is kind of the same thing again, just him, realizing he's the dragon reborn in the world, realizing it. Perrin is doing that struggle with the wolves, gaining a little more understanding there, but not much more decision as to what to do about it. And honestly, Matt is still that annoying character who stuck with the dagger or stuck trying to find the dagger so he doesn't die. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, Matt is still maybe a couple books away from hitting his stride. It's really in the fourth book where he starts to shine as, as a character that's not just annoying with the dagger. Honestly, I'd say book three is one of my favorites with Matt. So for those who have just finished book two and wondering if they're ever going to like Matt, just keep going a little more. <laughs> and I think in the first book, Jake, I asked you something like, if someone reads the first book and they don't like it, should they keep on reading? And my answer was, after one book, you kind of know. But now that we're getting more into Wheel of Time again, I agree with you. I think it does probably take three or four books to really understand what's going on here. And then after that fourth book, you have a pretty good sense of, okay, here's here's who the characters are. Here's what the conflict is. Here's what the world is. And off we go. Ten more books after that. Yeah, there's a lot that keeps getting revealed and expanded on in the first three or four books. And I think that's a one of the best parts of book two is the expansion of the world and 
the creativity there. So Caden, as a first time reader, after hearing us gush a bit there, what's kind of your take? How much do you feel like you're into the world and where do you think the series is going? Yeah, I would agree with what you guys have said that it takes some a couple books to get into it. Everyone, you know, does gush about the Wheel of Time. And after reading the first book, I was kind of like, oh, that was just okay. I wasn't really into it yet. But the further I read, the more I do get into it and the more it's starting to come together and the plot starting to thicken and you definitely get into the world a lot more. So I'm not sure what is going to fill 14, is it 14 books worth of, of plot yet? I haven't, I haven't quite got there yet, I think, but I'm excited to find out. Look at the map and think, oh, we're going to go to all these places and have adventures in every place. <laughs> That'll take you 14 books. <laughs> what, what's your opinion, Caden, on books as standalones between the first book and the second book? Which book do you think is a better book on its own in terms of character development, you know, rising, falling action, all of that? I would say book one is a better standalone than book two. I really feel like book two was a really good setup book. Like just like the final scene where it's the the Borderlands, uh, Shinar, yeah. And they ask him, you know, like, are you the Dragon Reborn? Or, or that's the, you know, the, I don't know if they actually asked that, but that's the, the question that remains and then just ends. I love that cliffhanger. And so I, I really feel like the second book was definitely a lot more setup and not so much of a, a standalone than, than the first book was. I think, in my opinion... Book two has cooler things happen in it, but overall there's a lot more there's a lot more kind of exposition that can kind of bog you down. Whereas the first book is pretty consistent throughout. But I, I think the climax of book two is one of my favorites. And I like the whole portal stone traveling. I also feel like book two had a lot more questions that it left open afterwards. Where book one yeah. you you do have the question like, oh, is he the dragon reborn? You you think so. And what what does that mean? But there's not a ton of like plot, other plot things open where this one definitely opens a lot more. Yeah. So let's roll that into a quick discussion about the TV show Wheel of Time on Prime. We're really excited for this. Unfortunately, COVID-19 has the filming put on hiatus a little bit, but we know from the showrunner Rafe Judkins that six of the episodes have been filmed thus far. They're working on post-production, looking to finish the last two once all the restrictions are lifted. So we're we're almost positive that out of these eight episodes, it's going to cover the first two books. So maybe like four episodes, four episodes. So how well do you guys think that they are going to do on this on this TV show? I mean, two books, we've talked about them both. They both kind of have plot lines in of themselves. They have some decent climaxes. What's your consensus? I'm pretty excited, personally, if you can't tell. Yeah, way excited. When I first heard they're going to do the first, probably do the first two season or first two books in the first season. The only thing that made me hesitant towards that is how similar the plots are in the first two books in the sense that they're all these characters in this place need to get to this other place and it's them traveling there. And then once they get there, there's a big battle and Rand battles the dark one. Like, I don't know how they're going to do that if they're just going to do like, you know, the first four episodes, they do that. And then the next four, we got to go do that again. Or if they're going to try to blend it more together to where... Maybe he doesn't battle the dark one at the eye of the world, you know, maybe just the forsaken and then have a bigger climax of him battling Bosomon at the end of like the season. I don't know. I, I think they can do it well, but I think that's something that they're probably trying to juggle around. I would say I, I have a lot of optimism for the show. I've heard quite a bit from Brandon Sanderson saying that he's read all the scripts. He's communicated with Rafe, the showrunner and has given him feedback, and he's pretty satisfied with how things are going. He did say on that podcast that I was referencing, the Dusty Wheel show, it's actually a YouTube show, but he did say that there was one thing that he split on with Rafe, and he didn't agree with the way they were taking it, but he understood that it was an artistic decision. So, I am I mean, I trust Brandon. I felt like he finished the series decently, and he's a huge fan. So I'm going to take those details to heart and continue to be excited for the show that we will probably see now into 2021 with the delays. Yeah, I'm excited to see what they do with it. So with our Wheel of Time shows, we like to finish on a power rankings segment. So we're going to go through our top three and our bottom three characters based on their performance on whatever criteria you guys want to choose. So based on their performance in this book only. So we like doing this because every book, characters kind of rise and fall. Some characters disappear from books. Some characters making good decisions. 
Some are making bad decisions. So how did you guys think characters did in The Great Hunt? Give me a top three. I'll let you go first, Caden. Well, Rand has to be in the top three somewhere. I felt like just overall he developed well and has cool powers now. And, you know, he fought with Balsamon at the end. So that has to count for something. Um, I'd say Nynaeve actually is in the top three. As much as I disliked her character or got annoyed by her character, I guess I didn't dislike it. I feel like, yeah, she was pretty influential in the end ending battle with the San Chan or um as for a third i don't know that's a great question give me give me some options here who 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 else have i not thought of i would say pat and fame i feel like his power really r- ramped up in this book yep i, I agree with that okay Caden's stealing jake's i'm i'm stealing the number three so i'd go rand <laughs> then nynaeve then pot on Th- oh actually no i'd go pot on Thane higher than than nynaeve for sure pot on Thane number two nynaeve number three okay i'd say pat and fame number one Higher than Rand just because we've known what Rand can do. And what we know is Rand doesn't really know what he can do. He's just kind of like, I have this power. I don't know really what I can do yet. Pat and Fane was this unknowable force. Like you've, we've been taught to fear Merdral so much. And he's just enslaving them to do whatever he wants and torturing them. And uh, the whole dark prophecy thing, I thought that was cool. And first time reading it, I don't know... Did he make that prophecy or did, was it just known? I don't know. I like that aspect of him though. Then I'd say Rand and probably, I don't know. I don't know if I, I want to put Matt in my bottom three, but he did blow the horn. Wait, are you already going to bottom three? Cause I haven't said my top three yet. No, no, no. I, I'm considering putting Matt at my third spot just because he blew the horn, but I'm not going to let that count. So I'll just say, um, probably Egwene. I liked Egwene when she, um, kind of got angry again after she was freed and all the new earth power she had learned probably a runner up would be Bale Doman for almost dis- for escaping the Shan Chan, almost rescuing the, the girls for someone with no powers. That was pretty legit of him to be able to do. Okay. Jake, are there any more characters you would like to name at this time? <laughs> no, that's it. <laughs> all right. My top three, I'm just going to mix it up to be interesting. I'm going number three, Matt, because he blew the horn and because that's something that apparently I would have done. Because I would have been tempted by my number two, Celine, who Ooh. is, yeah, yes, yeah, because she is, she performs well. I mean, she gets, she tricks the boys pretty well. <laughs> We're not sure exactly what she's doing, but it seems like her motivations are, are, uh, are coming to fruition. She's getting done what she wants to get done. And number three, I'm going with Uno, the Shinarian, just because he's fun. Uno. And I, I like his swearing. Everything's flaming with Uno. And, I mean, that's a great performance. So those are my top three. Uno's great. Love him. I, I really like how the Shinarians, even though... And I'm not... Shinarians? Shinarians? Close enough. But I, I really like how, even though they're somewhat of the comic relief, they are going to continue to be characters. And some of them are going to be pretty significant characters. I guess I'm not going to say who, but there's one character who has his role expand quite a bit to where he becomes like a chaotic neutral type force that has to be dealt with. Yep. Okay, Caden, give us a bottom three. Okay, third place, actually Moraine. She didn't do much this book, huh? Not a lot of on screen. She was just in the library the whole time, right? Yeah, and she almost got killed by the Drakkar, right? At that one part. Yeah. So yeah, she kind of, after the first book singing, so, I mean, she seemed really like all powerful in the first book. Yeah. Definitely like fell during this book, or at least didn't have as many. She pulled a Gandalf between giving Frodo the ring and then telling him to destroy it. She had to go do a bunch of research before she could meet back up with Rand and co. And then uh, t- the second place uh, is Matt, just because he, he didn't really do anything. He did blow the horn, but I just felt like he was kind of getting dragged along. And then number one, Elaine, if you mind number one. <laughs> yeah, what did she do? I don't remember what she does in this book. She's a novice. She winds up out being a novice. <laughs> yeah, but you don't even see her channel the power ever, I don't think. She's just kind of along for the ride. She's real pretty, though. She's got that auburn hair. <laughs> As you can tell, Steven is a big Elaine fanboy. No, no, no. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. That's been... 100% only because of the way she's her looks are described in the books. <laughs> well, okay. Who doesn't appreciate a beautiful woman, right? But Ben and Josh are the Elaine fanboys. Ben and Josh from yeah. the podcast. They love everything about her character to her plot points, everything. It's very strange. Totally indefensible, but they will try to. Indefensible. Um, okay, my ranking, I would say... Matt as number three, again, because even though he blew the horn, this whole journey was to help him. And he's just 
throwing attitude at Rand the whole time and like, dude, do something. At least Perrin got to take over as being a sniffer, you know? Then I would probably say, I think it's Lord Turok. Right, yeah. Hi- yeah. Highlight Turok, yeah. Highlight Turok, who uh, who Rand killed. Yeah, very poor performance from him. <laughs> Come on, man. You're a blade master. You come to put these these oath-breaking scum into their place, and you let a farm boy kill you. That was pathetic. Oh, number one, I'm trying to think, who would be the most useless? Or I guess not most useless, but another useless character. Oh, oh, no, I got it. Okay, Celine. Celine was zero power. Oh, come what on. What did she do? Celine was awesome. She, she didn't display any power. But she could have. She, she had the potential to. You get the hint that she's super powerful, but didn't do anything. But from reading this book, ranking power, unless you count power of seduction <laughs> and womanly wiles. If you're doing a hot, crazy scale for Celine. She uh, she fits right into that curve. Oh, she she maxes out that curve. <laughs> max hot, max crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, for my three, I'm gonna go like Caden Moraine number three. So she didn't do anything because she was just, I guess, trying to research and find out what to do. But all of her charges were off in the world, potentially running into a lot of trouble. And where was she to help them out? Nowhere. She was just trusting in the wheel, though. Uh, a little disappointed in that. I felt like she should have been involved a little more. <laughs> Number two, I'm going to go Rand, actually. I mean, I know he shows a lot of power, but he's also tricked quite a bit. He falls for the feminine wiles of Selene, and he makes some bad choices. Sounds like you would, too, though. Yeah, well, obviously. <laughs> Who wouldn't, really? But uh, yeah, yeah. So, so he thinks he can use the portal stones a little better than he actually can. Makes some big miscalculations. He still doesn't know what he's doing, and he's a little bit stubborn. I mean, understandable, but I have issues with Rand throughout the series. I'm going Rand number two in the bottom. And unfortunately, my number one bottom here of The Great Hunt is Egwene. Even though I really like her character throughout most of the book, she didn't do very well in this book. She was just stuck being a novice while Nynaeve was raised to Accepted. And she gets captured by the Soldown. She gets captured by by the Shan-Chan. When her friends were able to break three, why was she not able to escape? Mm, kind of lame. So, Egwene, number one. <laughs> felt felt like I could have... I, I wanted a little more from her. Hey, if you can blame the plot on Nynaeve someone to be able to channel, I can blame the plot on Egwene getting captured by the Shlom-Chan. So. True. Maybe I should blame Nynaeve for not rescuing Egwene as well. Yeah, that's that's better. Where was Bella in this book? No mention... She was, she was like, kind of put to the side. I think she's at the stables. She's at the stables in Shinar still. No. Wait, did she make it to Falma? Hmm, unsure. I'm sure she's in the background somewhere. Caden, if you're not familiar, there's a there's a big fan theory that Bella is actually the creator incarnate. Oh, oh there's nice. A lot of, there's a lot of support for this theory. That's cool. <laughs> a lot of support. Mainly lots of Reddit posts and upvotes. That's, <laughs> that's the majority of the support. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, thank you for, for listening <laughs> to this episode of Phantology. We try to make these episodes of, uh, of The Wheel of Time a little longer so we can give the series the, the justice it deserves. And thanks, Caden, for coming on and being a guest star for us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So if you you like the content we're putting out, check out our Discord, check out our website, www.phantologybooks.com, and look us up on the socials at Phantology Books. And until next time, we'll see you guys later. See ya. See ya, everyone.